Well, let's pray together. Father, as we turn now to your word in the book of Deuteronomy, we thank you for it and we pray, uh, even as we've just sung uh, a few moments ago, that righteous fruits would abound, that you would send your word into our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit and that he would bring forth the, the response in our hearts that you delight to see in your people. We ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. So here we are coming back to our regular sermon series uh, tonight. We're back in Deuteronomy. Uh, we're in the middle section of this great, great book of the Bible. You remember what's happening in the story of the Bible at this point. The people of Israel are camping out just on the other side of the river Jordan. They have come through the wilderness and now the last thing standing between and therein of the promised land is the river Jordan. And of course they're keen to cross the Jordan and get into the land and enjoy what God is about to give them. And yet before they do so, Moses sits them down and preaches to them. He preaches this wonderful book of Deuteronomy to them. And he does so because it is so important that as God's people get into the land, they will know how to live as God's people there. And already in the first few chapters of the book, Moses has summed up God's basic general commands to them. Summed up most of all, of course, in the Ten Commandments, which we find earlier in the book. And then he gets to the, the middle section, the, the big middle chunk of the book. And this is where he goes into a lot more detail. He's unpacking in precise details everything that is bound up in the Ten Commandments. Saying, what does it look like in detailed, specific ways to live in obedience to God when you get into that land that he's giving to you? And chapter 14, which belongs to that middle chunk of the book, is united by this theme of food. Now in our service this morning, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we were thinking a lot, weren't we, Food, about how God has provided these things for our enjoyment. And again this evening, as we come to Deuteronomy 14, again this topic of food comes up once again. Very appropriate on the weekend, of course, we've had our big church dinner last night. That in God's providence, both our sermons today have looked at food as one of the main topics within those passages. Now in the first half of chapter 14, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Moses outlined the food laws. What could God's people in those days eat and what were they not allowed to eat? And then in the, the second half of the chapter, we come to the law about tithing. And it's still to do with food because, of course, they were going to be living in an agricultural society. And most of them would be working as farmers of one sort or another. 
they'll be producing food. That would be their income, essentially, would be food. And the question is, how do they honor God with all of this food that is going to be produced when they get into the land and start farming it? And that's where this law of tithing comes in. So let's just have a quick overview of what this law entails. First of all, very simply, they are to set aside a tithe, which means a tenth, 10% of all the produce of the field over the course of that year. 10% of the grain that was grown, 10% of the wine that was made, 10% of the oil that was produced, and so on. And not just things that grew out of the ground or in the fields, but as well as that, the animal produce as well, the, the firstborn of the herd and the flock and other animals as well. All these things, they were to set aside as the tithe, the tenth. All this food, all these animals set aside as the annual tithe to God. And then what were they to do with this big chunk of food that they'd set aside well Moses says in verse 23 they must take it to the place that God will choose to make his name dwell there so in other words they must take it to wherever the tabernacle was at that point and then later on after that wherever the temple was going to be built which, of course, we now know was going to be in Jerusalem. So the people of Israel were to take this annual tithe to the tabernacle or the temple, and they would offer it to the Lord there. But that's not all that they would do. As well as that, they were to eat of it themselves. They're to have a feast before God. Now, of course, it would be impossible, wouldn't it, for them to give the whole tithe to this one meal, to make sure that they ate every last bit of the 10% of the tithe in that whole meal. Just imagine for a moment you and your family uh, trying to sit down and eat 10% of a farm's produce just in one mealtime. I think even if you had a very empty stomach and a very large appetite, you'd struggle, wouldn't you, to get through all of that food. So they didn't eat the whole tithe in that meal. As well as that, they would share some of it with the priests and the Levites for reasons we'll come to later on. And then after they had done that, anything else that was left over from this big quantity of food... Uh, and anything that wasn't going to be consumed could then be sold. Uh, it could be turned to money, and the money would be given to the temple to uh, go towards the work of the temple. And then in verse 24 and following, Moses deals with a practical difficulty that was going to arise inevitably with this law of the tithe. And the question is, what if when the people of Israel got into the land and you got your inheritance, your plot of land, what if that plot of land assigned to you was miles and miles and miles away from Jerusalem? That would present a, a difficulty, 
wouldn't it? Imagine trying to transport all of this food and all of these animals all the way to Jerusalem in a, a hot climate. It's going to be impractical for you to do that. And so there's a special dispensation made for the people who live a long way from Jerusalem. Now they're still to set aside a tithe, just like everyone else did. But instead of transporting it to Jerusalem, they were to sell it there and then. Turn it all into money, says Moses. And then, when you've sold it and you've got that money, uh, put that money in your back pocket and then go to Jerusalem. That's going to be a lot easier for you to do. And when you get to Jerusalem and you're ready for the offering before God, then buy all the food in Jerusalem that you're going to need for this feast that you and your family are going to have before God at the temple. Now, in some ways, this means it was better for the people who lived a long way away. This is a bonus for them making the journey, I, I suspect. Because everyone else, if you lived close enough to Jerusalem, you could feast only on the things that you yourselves had been able to produce that year. But those who've journeyed extra far, made that extra effort to get there, they have this bonus, don't they? They can decide whatever food and whatever drink they want for this special meal. So Moses says in verse 26, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And so when they'd been to the marketplace in Jerusalem and shopped around and decided what they wanted to eat and what they wanted to drink for this special meal. They were to then take it to the temple and enjoy this special meal before God. And of course then the money that is left over could be given to the temple and would support the work of the temple. That would be offered to God as well. And that's basically what the law of the tithe called the people of Israel to do. Now the question is, what did all of this mean? What was this law of the tithe intended to teach God's people? And as we look at these verses, we see that there are three things, basically, that the tithe and the law concerning the tithe was to teach God's people. So very quickly, let's just look at them one by one. Firstly, tithing taught them the fear of the Lord. It taught them the fear of the Lord. And that's very obvious, isn't it? At the end of verse 23, why are they to set aside a tenth of everything that their land produces each year? Moses says that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. When they settled down in the land, when they started farming the land and the crops began to grow and the harvests were gathered in, 
it would be very easy for them, wouldn't it, to start thinking to themselves, well, at last we are self-sufficient. Thank goodness that it's not like it was when we lived in the wilderness. Remember those days, but we had to rely on God so much back then, didn't we? And now we can provide everything we need for ourselves. We don't need to depend on God quite so much anymore. We can make a good living for ourselves now. If we work really hard, we can make ourselves rich. We can have a great life. And now we still need God for the the spiritual stuff, don't we? We still need God for forgiveness of our sins. But as far as our everyday needs are concerned, we can handle that ourselves now. And you see, there would be this subtle temptation, wouldn't there, for the people of Israel, that when they get that regular income, when they've got their own land, when they're producing their own food there, that they could start thinking that they don't really need God quite so much anymore. They need him for their spiritual well-being, but not, not for their material well-being, not for everyday needs. And you see, the law of the tithe is intended to stop that thought in its tracks. The law of the tithe is to teach the people of Israel that they are just as dependent on God's provision when there is a bumper harvest as they were when they would get up six mornings a week and go and pick up manna from the ground in the wilderness. The law of the tithe teaches them to fear the Lord at all times, always. To acknowledge that he is the one who always sustains them and provides everything for them. And that without his goodness there would be no harvest. And they were to give that 10% as a way of acknowledging that God was the one who gave the 100%. It was all from him. And therefore they would honour him not just with the 10, but with the other 90 as well. One commentator says, by returning a tithe to God regularly, the people would learn to fear the Lord and know that their prosperity did not depend on irrigation or advanced agricultural techniques, but on the beneficence and provision of their God. Now, you're probably thinking, well, does this law apply to us now as new covenant people of God? Of course, there are a number of things that are quite different, which is obvious, isn't it? We don't give our offerings in food for a starter. So don't bring your crops or your herds to to church uh, next week. And of course, we don't have a temple either, like they did. Uh, We don't have a place where we all have to go to give our offerings to God in a particular place. And as well as that, in that kind of society, they gave an annual offering. They gave it when the harvest had been gathered in. Whereas for us, our giving is quite different. If we're paid a a weekly or monthly wage, our giving ought to reflect that normally. And are we called to tithe particularly? That is, does God ask his people today to give 10% of their income. Now, people have got different opinions uh, on this. Personally, I think that 10% is a good biblical principle as a starting point. 
But I think that the New Testament teaching on giving encourages us to think not in terms of a, a required percentage, so much as in terms of joyful, sacrificial generosity in our giving, which, of course, will often mean going beyond 10%. That's where the emphasis is in the New Testament teaching on giving, joyful, generous, sacrificial giving. It's worth reminding ourselves of some of the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and chapter 9 as well, where he talks about the kind of giving that the early church were displaying. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. Then he goes on to say, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And when God's people give like that, it teaches us, doesn't it, the fear of the Lord. It gets us away from that foolish mindset that, that so long as we've got a decent job and so long as we've got a steady income, we're self-sufficient people who can provide all that we need for ourselves and we only really need God for the spiritual stuff. It reminds us, doesn't it, as we give to the Lord that he is the one who sustains us. He's the one who provides everything for us. Without his goodness, there would be no income whatsoever. And we give to him our 10 or 12 or 15 percent or whatever you've decided in your heart as a way of acknowledging that God is the one who provided the hundred percent for us and he'll go on providing whatever we need and we're free therefore to give generously because we know that God will provide for us we won't outgive our God it teaches us doesn't it to revere God to worship him, to honour him, even with our material blessings, because they're all from him anyway. And this principle, you see, teaches us the fear of the Lord, firstly. And that's not all that it teaches. As well, we see that this law of the tithe taught God's people the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. Remember what we saw earlier about what this law stipulates. It's not just about giving God the 10% and then going back home to wherever these people lived. Now as well as that, they and their family would eat this meal in God's presence. And so you might think of it in these terms. God gives them the 100%. And then they acknowledge God by giving to him the 10%. And then out of that 10%, God invites them to come and enjoy some of it for themselves. And they were to enjoy this feast together as a family, 
before God. And look at verse 26. You shall eat therefore before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. You see, it's about joy, isn't it? And the joyfulness of this feast is underlined by those extra stipulations in verses 24 to 26 about those people who had to travel a long way to get to Jerusalem for this feast. Remember, God said to them, buy whatever you like, whatever you want to eat, whatever you want to drink, buy that and bring that to the feast. And it's as if God is saying to them, treat yourselves. This is a happy, joyful occasion, so buy whatever you want. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever it might be. And I'll pay for it out of the tithe that you're already already giving to me anyway. So there's going to be no extra cost for you. However much you spend on this meal that we're about to have together. Pull out all the stops. Whatever you want to eat. Whatever you want to drink. Whatever you desire. Whatever your appetite craves. And then when you've made your selection and your shopping basket is full of all these wonderful foods and drinks, bring it all to the temple and have this slap-up meal with your family, in my presence, with rejoicing. One commentator says, it reinforced the point that the tithe should not be a solemn burden, but a joyful celebration. You see, don't you, this is teaching them something of the joy of the Lord. And it's something we can apply in a certain way today, isn't it? We've already heard some of those words from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul speaks of the joy of giving, and the cheerfulness of giving. And he's saying there, isn't he, it's not a solemn burden when you give back to God out of what he has already blessed you with. No, it's a joyful celebration to be able to do that. And there are differences, of course. As Christians today, we don't have a meal quite like the meal that they had that's described to us here by Moses. And yet still, there is a meal, isn't there? There is a a special occasion when the Lord says to us, come and eat and drink in my presence with rejoicing. You see, the, the parallel for us is the Lord's Supper, isn't it? That's the meal that we're invited to as Christians it's a a part of our worship that's where we come before the Lord and eat and drink in the presence of the Lord this is our meal of rejoicing as we give thanks to God for all that he's given us in Christ and as well as that as it is a foretaste of the great meal the great banquet when in the new creation we will sit down And we will eat with all of God's people and drink of that fine heavenly wine and eat that fine heavenly food at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord with rejoicing. And so the law of the tithe teaches these two things we've seen so far, doesn't it? It teaches God's people the fear of the Lord and the joy of the Lord. And then one other thing that it teaches them, and that is the mercy of the Lord. And when they sat down for this meal before God, it wasn't just the family themselves. Look at verse 27. We read there, You shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, 
for he has no portion or inheritance with you. And the tribe of Levi, as you probably know, was given no inheritance in the land. The Lord himself was their inheritance. And so the Levites were scattered amongst the rest of the people. The Levites had no um, land to farm. They had uh, no way to produce food for themselves in that way. Verse 27 seems to be suggesting when you, you come for that special meal, when you go to the temple for that, don't forget the Levites. I think maybe the, the point is invite some of the Levites from your town along as well. Bring them with you, with your family for that meal. Invite them along so that they too can have this wonderful experience of eating and drinking in the presence of God with rejoicing. And that thought of including those who don't have the means of doing this themselves, that is then pressed further in verses 28 and 29. There's another aspect of the law of tithing that we've not mentioned yet. And that is what happened every third year. Something different would take place on the third year. They would still set aside the tithe as normal. But on the third year, they wouldn't take it to Jerusalem. They wouldn't offer it before God there. They wouldn't have that meal at the temple on the third year. Instead, this is what would happen. They would gather the tithes from all the people from within that particular town and store it in big storehouses in each town. And it would be for the benefit of anyone who did not have land of their own and therefore could not provide for themselves and could not provide for their families. So it was for the Levites as well, who, of course, had no inheritance of land. They could eat of the food in these storehouses. But not just the Levites, anyone who was needy, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the widow. And such people could come and take as much food as they needed from these storehouses so that they would be provided for, so that they could eat and be filled. And you see, don't you, the law of the tithe teaches us about the mercy of the Lord, that he's a God who cares for the needy, for the poor, for the destitute. And because he is a merciful God, he calls his people to give in order that such people can be cared for. It's another element of our giving, isn't it? That our God is a merciful God. He cares for the needy. And in our giving, he calls us to give what we can so that others who are in need can be blessed. So the tithe speaks of the mercy of the Lord as well. And of course, the supreme example of the mercy of the Lord that this law points us towards is, of course, Jesus himself. In those chapters in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, as Paul gives a lengthy, detailed treatment of Christian giving, he includes there the, the supreme example of the one who gave the one who gave it in a sacrificial and generous way so that others could be blessed. Of course, it's pointing us, isn't it, to Jesus. Paul says there, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
And you see, when we give, and when we give generously and sacrificially and filled with the joy of the Lord, we are reflecting in just a, a small way the mercy of God that was displayed supremely in Jesus Christ who gave himself so that needy people could receive the mercy of God. It's a wonderful law, isn't it? This law of the tithe. And consider all these things that it was intended to teach the people of God and all that it teaches us today as well. Teaching us of the fear of the Lord and the joy of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord. And there's one more thing to mention just very briefly as we close and that is that God blesses those who give like this. God blesses those who give like this. Did you notice that? That's how the chapter ends, isn't it? It ends with a promise of blessing to those who obey the law of the tithe, those who give in all the ways that this chapter has described. Moses says that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And you see, even as they gave sacrificially like this to God, setting aside that 10% of their produce, God assures them that they're not going to be left wanting. He will bless them. He will provide for his people. He will give them all that they need. And it's a promise that is held out to us in the New Testament as well. Don't mistake that for the, the prosperity gospel, by the way. God doesn't promise that if you give him a bit of money, he's going to make you rich and healthy. But what he does promise is that when his people fear him, and when they acknowledge that he is the one who gives all things to us, he's the one who provides the 100% for us. And because we acknowledge that, we are glad, therefore, to give to him joyfully and cheerfully and sacrificially and generously. He promises then that blessings will flow to such people. And Jesus said, didn't he, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, it's a promise of blessing, isn't it, for those who give. And when Paul is writing his letter to the Philippians, as you probably know, one of the reasons for him writing that letter is to, to thank them. It's a thank you letter for the, the way in which they've supported him in his ministry. They set aside money and gave the money to Paul to support him in his ministry. And he writes the letter to the Philippians to thank them for their gift. And at the end of the letter, in the, the final couple of paragraphs, he's thanking them for that gift. And he, he speaks in terms of the blessing that will come back to them for the way in which they have given to his work. He said, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, it's a promise of blessing, isn't it? because they fear the Lord and they've given generously to his work. And again, a similar thing in the letter to the Corinthians. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And as we seek to give joyfully and generously and cheerfully and sacrificially to the Lord, may he fill our hearts with the fear of the Lord and the joy of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord. And he will supply every need of ours according to his riches in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank and praise you for all that is taught to us in these wonderful verses. Thank you that you are the God from whom all blessings flow. Every good gift is from you. Every penny that we receive comes ultimately from your hand. And we pray you'd help us to be wise with everything that you give us. Help us to know in our hearts what is appropriate for us to give to your work. And as we do so, help us to give joyfully and cheerfully and sacrificially and generously. And we pray that we would be filled with the fear and the joy and mercy of God as we do so. What a privilege to be caught up into your work in this way that we can contribute to your purposes in this practical way out of the things that you've already given to us. And as we give like this, we look to you for gracious blessing. May we sow bountifully and then reap bountifully. Supply every need of ours according to your riches in glory in Christ Jesus. May your grace abound to us and may we abound in every good work. And we pray this so that we might grow in godliness and so that those who are in need would be provided for, and so that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.